0: Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew podcast channel. My name is Stacey Geringer, and I'm the outreach director at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. We are excited to share our latest podcast series with you. The series is titled Early Development and Child Welfare and features interviews with a variety of professionals in the fields of early childhood and child welfare. Listeners will enjoy content related to attachment, culture, screening, brain development, infant mental health, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel for future episodes. Thank you for listening and take care.
1: Hello, uh, I'm Tanika Eves uh, from Fairfield University's Egan School of um, Nursing and Health Studies, and I am honored to be here to have a conversation with Dr. Amita Parker of the Georgetown Center for Health and Human Development. Today we're going to be having some conversation about culture and sort of how culture enters child welfare work. what does culture mean? What implications does it have for um, working with families and, and identifying risk and thinking about um, some of the power dynamics and differentials, um, as well as sort of traditional norms that we've all been conditioned and trained in and how that may um, hinder or prohibit uh, effective child welfare practice. So, so happy to be with you today, Amita, and um I just, you have such vast, rich experience. And I wonder for you, um, what does culture mean? You know, what is the meaning of culture? We know that in a relationship-based work, you know, we have to acknowledge culture um, and and we have to think about, you know, where we are positioned culturally and what that means and what does it mean for the people that we're helping. Um, So how would you define culture? Thank you. That's a great question, Tanika. Uh, Culture... (laughs)
2: defining it is is something that I think uh is difficult to do because it is i would say multifaceted there is many parts or aspects to culture um so I like to describe it more so than anything and and for me culture is it's a way of being right it's a way of um, thinking behaving acting uh, I think about uh some of the different aspects such as values and beliefs Uh, I think about traditions I think about music and and food and and dance and and uh, cultural like patterns uh, rituals Uh, I think about things that are passed down meanings I think about spirituality or um, faith right and 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 experiences with one's higher power if if there is Uh, There's so many things that go into um, culture for me and I think it's really important for all of us to think about uh, not only like what is our cultural, so the personal, what is our culture and our our values, beliefs, our attitudes or thinking or the traditions or customs or ways of being um, that we hold, right, that are a part of us and that we bring into our work because our work it's personal and it's professional. I bring myself into my work. And so, you know, when I think about my own culture and my the ways that I was, the ways that I am, right, and the ways that I, I want to be and show up in the world, that in many ways is shaped by my culture. How I see my work, how I see the people I interact with uh, is all filtered through, you know, my, my culture. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think you know sometimes people think about how culture you know they they that culture aligns with different groups right and and i I see that to be so um I identify as a black african American woman and I say black and african American because my i'm i am the descendant of slaves, and I think that that naming that specifically situates you know my experience um my racial or ethnic origins right in context and that i bring in my work there are different ways that we talk there are different ways that we um interact with one another um the food that we eat is different the music that we listen to is distinct right the way that we move our bodies um and so the way that i interact with with people is in many ways shaped by um my background experiences my culture uh in in i think about cultural identity too because i think that not only are people like connected to different types of groups, right. Um, but they, they identify with it sometimes in, in different ways. I know of people who don't want to be called black. They want to be called African American or Afro American or something else entirely. Right. Like, cause some people say that no race is constructed. That's the oppressor's language. Right. <laughs> so I think that, um, it's important for us to also think about identity and like how we do or do not identify with certain aspects of culture. Um, so I think that's important to to think about how that shapes how we think, how we feel, how we behave, how we how we show up um, in our work.
1: So this, what you, what you really, it feels like you, in your illustration of culture, it's like it's like the lifeblood of human experience. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's varied, it's individual, but it, it enters every aspect of, of, I think, being human, and being alive, right? right. Um, and so you, you mentioned how you bring yourself into your work. And I wondered if you'd say more about that, but also maybe in a more in a broader sense, how does culture um, enter child welfare work, enter the work of working with children and families? What, what, what role does culture play?
2: Well, that, that's another good one that um, I think that our culture comes into our work in that it, it shapes how we think about the work, uh, depending on what specific role one plays and who a person is interacting with. Uh, for example, um, when I interact, when I was a mental health consultant, right? Interacting directly with uh, families with young children, when I interacted with my Latino families um, speaking in Spanish, right, um, and they, they experienced me as a Black woman, right, and, you know, they didn't know how to make sense of me sometimes, um, and so I would get a lot of questions, but at the same time, I think that being a Black woman and, and being also able to speak Spanish um, and connect with people, Um, along those dimensions of oneself. I think being a person of color and also speaking the language, right, knowing a little bit about um, ways of interacting with people, not rushing conversations, you know, starting with the small talk, right. I was, um, I mean, someone say that I was, I was breaking some rules to a certain extent in that, you know, not literally, but I, I, I knew that there were ways I needed to show up in those spaces with my families who were Latino. They offer me tea or water or, or bread, like pun. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, me being able to be with them and accept that, right, and appreciate the, the gift that they were giving me to enter their space and then also to share themselves and their stories that, I had to learn that that was a part of the process, right like and I think that my own culture um and, and upbringing right it taught me that relationships are important. It taught me that food is a way that you connect with people <laughs> um and through food and drinks, like there's unspoken there's an unspoken connection that happens in that in that context and it's it's an honor when a person wants to offer you. Um, themselves, right, Um, offer Mm -hmm. what they have, even when they have limited resources, you know, being able to just like, I don't know, sit with and appreciate that, but then to know Mm -hmm. that there's a greater good, right? Like the relationships that I'm building and the, the, the time that I'm spending building relationship will lead to me continuing to serve these families over time versus like I know so many other folks who they like could they couldn't keep families um they Mm -hmm. couldn't keep families engaged uh they kept losing families like lost the contact they fell off the map they you know and I had some of the higher um higher risk higher needs families right but I was able to stay connected with a lot of them because um I was intentional about my relationship building because that felt right to me I was intentional about taking my time also because that felt right to me and because of, you know, I think my culture, my upbringing, values, beliefs, attitudes towards um interacting with people, those things shaped me to know that even though I need to do X, Y, and Z, the timelines are there, the documentation is there, I will do all of those things. It may take me a little bit longer, but I'll do those and, and be able to maintain uh, a good relationship, with quality outcomes at the end. But I think that it's getting to a place where I, I, I finally decided that, you no, know, this feels right. And I know that um, there's alignment with my culture. And then it led mm-hmm. to me staying engaged with families, which I think was important as well. So that's kind of how my, my, I would say my culture, um, and then like being able to tune in and, and recognize where that source comes from, that desire to like build relationships, stay connected and and
1: appreciate and honor um, the gifts that people get. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that's just so much to unpack there. You know, you... you you mentioned sort of your your awareness and recognition of who you are culturally and how you identify and how that then meets with um, the families that you, you you serve, but also that how that might open you up to hearing their story and seeing things from their perspective. And and this idea you mentioned breaking rules. <laughs> this this idea of sort of what are the professional norms, what are the organizational norms. And and how does that sometimes run counter to maybe what we need to do um in order to develop that relationship and form that relationship? And and it, it raises questions of so how do these norms get established based on whose assumptions and values and, and who who are the norms meant to serve, mm-hmm. right? And 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 then and how that um that can clash with not only the the, the the cultural sort of the lifeblood of the people and the experience that that, that we are in service to, but also maybe who we are as practitioners. Mm-hmm. If if we grew up understanding the value of relationship or or intimacy or touch um, or affection or food, and and that that has a place in the work, but we're trained that maybe that doesn't have a place in the work Mm -hmm. and how do you negotiate that and then and then how do you still meet your professional standards right you know that 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 then say you've done you did this job you know you've completed your job um so I think that you you just there's there's so much that um that goes on there there's so much to negotiate totally um
2: Yeah, there's so much gray area, right? Like even within our professional norms or standards, right? Like I think a lot of things are subject to interpretation. And I think that um, because I was able to get connected with other black social workers, for example, um, the National Association of Black Social Workers, one entity, right, that has really shaped my understanding of my identity as black in social work and how um there are some 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 spaces in which there is some incongruence right there's some some mixing of um things that happens and it it places us in a place where we feel a little bit uncomfortable or uneasy and i think that i've i've tended to lean towards what feels right in those gray areas and then i can justify it Um, Now, there are some things that actually, you know, like, in all honesty, it's not great. It's black and white, right? And the black and whites, I'm not breaking those things. I need a job. I need money um, (laughs) to survive uh, and provide for my family or whatnot. Um, But I think that there's a lot of gray area and it is around Mm -hmm. some of these like more nuanced um, values like relationships. Um, For example, I'll just give one example. Like we in my family um when you enter a space you speak to and greet every individual right mm-hmm. you you greet everybody <laughs> in that space i don't care who they are they could be just the the postman walking by right it doesn't matter mm-hmm. you greet everyone and i know of other people who they were not um socializing that way right that's not a part of you know their experience and they'll walk in and say nothing to no one and 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 for me that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way only because i'm socialized (laughs) in a different way you should
1: you should come to new england that's that's (laughs) the norm
2: um and and, but you know it's one of those things that it's 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 interesting though like how that that works in practice like it's it's interesting how you know there are different clashes right and i think that i tend to lean toward what what feels right, um, being able to justify all the decisions that I'm making and those things that come from um, come from the heart, right? Um, mm. Learning about what are the standards or norms and what does the research say and not say, I think has always helped with my justifications of my decisions on how I show up and um, engage with families. And I think that's a struggle for a lot of people because they don't know (laughs) the research, right? They don't know how uh, things like our uh, social work code of ethics were created and, Mm -hmm. and then even how they evolved over time and knowing that history is really important so that you know who is at the table and how those things were established. And then you can have a better understanding of how biased they really are to a certain extent. Right. And then, um, how to proceed accordingly. Accordingly,
1: Absolutely. That makes a lot of sort of who is at the table <laughs> making mm-hmm. the decisions really is sort of, I feel like that's a question we need to ask ourselves all the time, um, uh, you know, in, in, in our practice and our work and, and certainly in terms of understanding policy. Um, but I, I wanted to spend a little time um, talking about assumptions because I think a lot of what becomes normed or standardized gets based on assumptions mm-hmm. and, and on, on, this, on this macro level. But then individually, you know, how, do I, how our assumptions might influence how we interact with or approach others. So in your mind or in your experience, you know, where, do our, where do assumptions come from? And how do we sort of talk about assumptions from a cultural lens?
2: yeah i i think assumptions like if i'm operating from the description of assumption like being like those um automatic or prejudgment kinds of thoughts uh or feelings that we have about certain things um for me those things derive from a variety of different sources uh the assumptions that i hold Uh, are part of a really complex process like that there there are thoughts and feelings and automatic thoughts and feelings right that that come from uh, my family of origin and what they taught me or what they showed me what I experienced Uh, and then what did I learn in school about you know, think about values and beliefs, like what is true, what is right, what is wrong, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and in, in those, all of those things were in many ways, like, taught to me very early in life, um, and then reinforced in the other spaces that I encountered or interacted with, so within the schools, if, if I was involved with, with teams or um smaller communities right it's not just community that like the geographic community but it's it's the other communities we interact with non-geographic so think family think friends think um you know spiritual community right i'm a person of faith and i have you know i was reared within um church of god in christ right so kojic um communities right and so that that there are um assumptions that were i think developed and reinforced within my my spiritual origins right or faith-based background Uh, additionally like i think that when you think about it where else was i at (laughs) during my time frame you know Mm -hmm. in high school or in college right Like, like once i got into social work um they began to, to socialize me, um, uh, to think and feel certain things about certain people or certain ways of of um acting or behaving or, or being right in the work. And so they also through the, the I won't say rigorous process, but the, the process of like um like developing and shaping my thinking about what is ethical and what is not ethical right, what is good and what is mm-hmm. bad. Our profession does um do a lot of that uh, to prepare us for the workforce and then you have lots of different practical experiences. But outside of our educational experiences, um, there's also the media, right? And, mm. and the media shapes our thinking about what is good or bad. The media also shapes what we believe to be, you know, superior or inferior um, important or not important by, um, directing our attention to certain things and not others, right? Um, making us see certain groups of people as, as dangerous or as harmful or as, um, less advantaged or whatever the case may be. So the media, be it the news sources, the papers, the, the, the journal articles, uh, um, or not just journal articles, but any kind of written stuff, any kind of stuff mm-hmm. that's happening online. So the media in um, the public press has a role in, in developing and reinforcing assumptions. Um, and then I would say policies and practice too, because mm-hmm. the policies and the practices that are instituted in many ways tell us what is good or bad, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, those policies uh, create, I would say, an imprint in our minds about uh, what types of behaviors are desirable or not desirable and what what's okay and what's not. And and we operate like all of us operate. I'm I'm putting this in the context of myself, right? Personally and how that's developed and reinforced in me, but this dynamic process is a part of all of our lives. Right. And I think that right. when we slow down, we can begin to see like, okay, why? So I'll give you an example. I was at the store with my daughter, um, And There were two checkers. Um, There was one who appeared to be a white male and there was one who appeared to be light skinned, but person of color, curly hair. I wasn't sure if she was what her race or ethnicity was, but my daughter at the time was five. And she said, Mom, I know why you went to this other person, <laughs> the the woman who appeared to be a person of color. It's because she's black. And I'm like, baby, I don't know if she's black or white or mixed race or of some other race or ethnicity. I went to her because the guy who appeared to be white had just sneezed. Um, and we're in the COVID area. <laughs> so I seen him sneeze through his mask. I didn't know what he had going on. So, bam, I'm going over here <laughs> to this other woman. Um But still like that, that minute event, right, that my daughter, Mm. my daughter stopped me in my tracks and it made me think, did I go to this woman who appeared to be woman who appeared to be person of color because of um, the color of her skin or because she felt like a person who I could feel like more comfortable or safer with, with me also being a person of color and woman or literally because she sneezed. That I don't know, but it's possible that I chose her just based on the uh, the things that it could have been entirely true that my daughter was right. Right. I don't know. But I think that pausing, pausing is helpful um, to help yeah. us think about why do we think the way we think? Why do we do the things that we do? And it's not until we pause and stop and break apart these like minute events that we can really um identify what are the assumptions or the prejudgments the 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 automatic thoughts and feelings that we have about certain individuals or certain situations and then like you can you can't undo bias that you don't that you don't
1: acknowledge so right yeah it, it feel i mean i think that's an excellent example of sort of implicit bias which um is this new sexy term, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not really, because it's, you know, it's, it's as old as time, and and how so much of maybe what we are conditioned, you know, what we learn in home, which is often a reflection of, like you said, these these other really much larger forces. And I think what's also interesting or fascinating to me is, is how early that happens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you, you mentioned your daughter's five years old and that she's already absorbed enough information to be able to hypothesize about why you might choose one cashier over another mm-hmm. is is really telling about, right? And, and so we're all subject to these assumptions, even if we're the victim, Right. Of, you know, of, or, or, or from whatever position or standpoint, um, because it's everywhere, sort of how we are, um, we're conditioned to see people and to see groups of people and 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 to see difference perhaps as well Mm -hmm. and and that um very often the assumption is difference is somehow bad or negative right um and and you're right and how do you it, it takes mental and emotional work to stop and interrogate yourself and say well why did i have that particular reaction to that particular individual What's really going on there? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what could it be? so that's it's it's just really fascinating, and you're right. you can't address it until you acknowledge it, right. <laughs> um, that that you know, so so many people say, I don't have any biases. and um it's actually something that many of my my undergraduate social work students will say, like I'm just going to help whoever I need to help, no matter um, you know, how no matter what the issues are, if I don't agree or if I see things differently because, you have to be unbiased Mm -hmm. um and and that's and i have to often gently reframe you know if you have a brain you have bias and so the question is not so much being unbiased but it's recognizing biases and and challenging them right and being in conversation with them exactly because that's just the way
2: the brain works right like you're taking in loads of information um and yeah category category categorizing
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) people (laughs)
2: um, in situations without you know even thinking about it and I think it's so important for um, especially people who are working with uh, historically marginalized and underrepresented groups underserved groups to really be thinking about what have you been told right about these Mm -hmm. groups through your family your friends your faith or um your your if you are spiritually oriented right like the institutions within that um what have you seen in the news right in the media what have you read in these textbooks right like I think about and this is really Mm -hmm. it's not a new it's not new for me because I've been critiquing um cultural confidence for a really long time but uh it is one of those things where I'm now at the place where I'm like we are um reinforcing these assumptions in, in our textbooks in the way that we even do our education, like social work education sometimes. And mm. I think we don't we don't we're now recognizing the ramifications of that, right? But to, to also think that like it's not your fault that you held biases or you're making these prejudgments, right? It's it's to acknowledge that they exist. And even I think about how we've done um diversity uh diversity and cultural competence or integrating diversity at the end you know those different little small things that we have done as a field um mm-hmm. in our education and in our textbooks that have continued to reinforce and marginalize historically underrepresented groups and i think that it is now come to my understanding like oh my gosh i don't want to continue I don't want to continue to replicate this, right? I don't want to continue right. to enforce that you can learn about um, Latinx populations or immigrant populations or the Black populations, and 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 then think that you are culturally competent, mm-hmm. meaning that you are competent and ready to respond and engage in a way that is that is sensitive, responsive, um, and and helpful, right? But I think that we teach. <laughs> That's just the way that that it's that it that that the, that it's framed. And it's I don't know how to do it better yet. Um, but I do I, right. I think that I wanna think more deeply about how I can do it better because it's so important to not continue to uh feed these negative narratives and um the kinds of um biases that we don't want, you know, the next generation
1: right. of of folks to hold. I really I love how you brought up sort of how 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 does education inform assumptions and and I'm thinking too so you know I'm I'm educated in social work as well and I I may have been in school before a long time before you I'm thinking I'm older than you but but um and remembering that any sort of discussion like you said it, it will be at the end of a chapter about um the black family or the Latinx family or the immigrant family and it will be two pages. Mm-hmm. as if you as if you could capture <laughs> the, the depth of, of of the experience of these vastly different groups not to mention the variance within groups in, in in you know six pages and then the so then it's like and who is the rest of the chapter talking about right the unnamed this, this very <laughs> normative way and, mm-hmm. and and so these the last six pages is sort of the, the deviation from the norm and how powerful that is um and and it said this is a nice segue into my next question which has to do with power because you talked about how the media informs our assumptions policies inform our assumptions and 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 policies get made based on you know like desirable or undesirable behaviors or who is perceived as deserving of support or help and who mm-hmm. is undeserving and so you know how do we think about the power differential in dialogue about culture? Mm-hmm. You know, you know how 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 does that factor in?
2: Yeah, you know, power is a really interesting concept, right? And it it also has many different meanings. And I've learned more over the last few years about power. And it, for me, I was just thinking about positions of power initially right and as i'm thinking about you know using this cultural lens to think about our own culture and the culture of those we're interacting with but also thinking about power and how does power um interact with our work i think that we have to look at power um more multidimensionally so not just think about positions of power right who has the purse and who i mean who has the money right and who's making the decisions but to also consider like who has the power to decide anything? Like, which each of us has the power to decide something, <laughs> if nothing else, our own actions, right? Um, who has the power to change something or anything, right? And and when I think about it in that way, I also think about like where where could this be happening at? Like where could power be used? Um, or where could power be built? uh who has a capacity to decide or or change that kind of a thing. And I think that irrespective of where a person's position is in the organization, most organizations these days are asking folks what they think would be helpful um to improve an organization or just in the process of continuous improvement and and staff morale or or whatever, you know, keeping people happy so they stay in the work. Uh, child welfare is one of those fields that has struggled with turnover. So mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet money that they're asking mm-hmm. people what they think and feel about the work and how to improve um, the organization and um, outcomes of families. Right, and so Absolutely. I think about you know what are the ways in people what are the ways in which people are using the power that they do hold. Um, if you're a direct serp, super direct service provider interacting directly with families. Um, How are you interacting with them? Are you acknowledging the power dynamics that are at play there in those interactions? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Are you, you know, giving voice to their experience in the other spaces that you're in? So I think about how direct service providers can share what their families are desiring, or at least to say, offer space, right? If if people want to know how families are doing, um, share the power and share the space. Let me invite somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, let me let me ask a mom or or a, a parent, a caregiver, a family member to come in and share what they think should be done differently. Um, so for me, power it it looks a lot of ways, and I think who's in the positions of power, what do they look like, what's their experience, Um, who has a, the 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 capacity to share um, power, and are they doing it? Um. Are they trying to build power? Are they trying to build what could be a collective power, right? Where you shift from, you know, hierarchical, um, a few individuals are making decisions to multiple individuals making decisions. Um, right, right.
1: Or a partnered joint decision making. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, and you're right, when we typically talk about power, it's sort of on this larger macro level of, of, of who's controlling society, but that, um, as practitioners and, and for child welfare professionals, and I think they're even they are also perceived to have a great deal of power mm-hmm. by the families and the communities that they're working in. I mean, many times people don't even understand. And some practitioners don't understand this that for for child welfare workers, they are not the ones who ultimately make a decision about whether or not a child stays in a home. It's a a judge. And it may be it's a judge who doesn't know anything often (laughs) about child development or or the community or the home or the realities um, of the. so, So that's sort of another example of sort of where is where maybe is power misplaced? Mm-hmm. or maybe reimagining what that power and that decision making should look like mm-hmm. um and and how and how critical that is and, and how you absolutely have to consider culture um in that planning and in those conversations
2: yeah totally um, i i think like i heard of um I, I was writing a paper with some folks on um poor outcomes in child welfare for black families and doing some research to look at what are some different models or ways of like shifting and building power within this really complex system that has operated a certain kind of a way for such a long time. Um, and what I came across was an example of, um, where a community decided on its own that instead of there being like, um, one the child welfare workers became more aware of the power that they do in fact hold um in that they language um the perspective and experience of the people that they're working with so how they write and how they talk about families does indeed matter and they became more aware of that and also how their own biases right Um, values beliefs or whatnot could creep into their writing and I thought that was so powerful like Mm. to see them making those connections but then additionally like in terms of system change their um, this community created more measures of joint decision making and accountability and so that then it wasn't the child welfare worker and then the the reports then shared with the judge that was like dictating how the proceedings would, you know, um, proceed, whatever. <laughs> um, but in fact, it was like multiple layers and multiple steps and multiple people, um, mo- multiple voices, including the families. Um right. Family right. was amplified, right? The family voice, the family supports were amplified intentionally. And that was done to kind of like counter... Um, the power dynamics, like to you know, one of the the key areas of humility is around like adjusting power imbalances, like in mitigating them where you can, right? And so this is an example of of how that could look, and I really appreciate it because, um, one they created some tools that allow people to think about where their um own values, beliefs, um ideas. Uh, Thoughts about child development, thoughts about parenting could creep into the work with this rubric they created, which was very cool. Um, Mm. But anyway, I say that to say that there are ways that communities or practitioners, organizations can um, examine the power dynamics and also create ways to share power, build power. Um, and address just address some of those imbalances because that's a barrier to like real real like I feel like it's real change I mean I don't have a better way to say it besides like connecting and meeting families where they are in a very mm-hmm. authentic way making the process really transparent and also then demonstrating that the the process um, intends to um, help serve and elevate and support uh, families um, because the way that it operates right now decisions are made behind cl- closed doors um parents parents' voices especially like if you think about parents maybe who have um, intersecting disadvantages maybe they mm-hmm. um are a person of color also uh in poverty like experiencing poverty also experiencing mm-hmm. mental health or substance use challenge right what, what how how often are, are their voices Really like elevated and heard in those situations or cases, right? And then and then people really, um, you know, I could just think of so many examples where that's happening. And those parents had, um, they were talking, but nobody was listening, oh, mm-hmm. right? They were telling them about their experiences and the struggle, but nobody was listening. And so, definitely, then you see the the family become disempowered, right, and give up. I mean, um, and then what do they take about? Oh, the the family is no longer interested in in you know the process, right? So we should move to, um, you know, address their rights or terminate their rights or whatnot. And I think that, you know, after seeing so many families give up in the process, it to me has made me think like, there's something really wrong that's happening. Um, If the system oppresses a person in such a way to which. One they don't think they have a right to be there, two they don't think that they have a voice, and that anybody is listening or willing to hear them or help them mm.
1: that's that's really powerful that uh, and i one thing that's standing out as I'm listening to you uh, uh, the humility factor that that so you know we all have and i I find this in my work with with infants and families everybody's got an opinion about babies, right? Like we all have these really strong opinions about how we're supposed to take care of babies Mm -hmm. and what that looks like and and, and, and beliefs about that. And um, when our expectation or beliefs are violated, um, you're right, the response, it's like a shutdown. And so then we're not willing to ask the family, oh, well, well, how did you come to make that decision? Or what's the story behind this practice that I'm seeing mm-hmm. that I don't understand? But, and and that, that, you know, it's almost this assumption or this idea that, that um, we can't learn, that families have nothing to teach us. Right. And then if you combine that sort of almost willful ignorance with a power differential, it, it, it can, it's pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. It, it can, I mean, and, it, and it's, we've seen this happen. Like you said, it's a pattern right? Like this This is not, um, this is more the norm than the exception is that right. this is what happens in the process. Right. Um, yeah. And and I also wonder too about what needs to happen or, or what kind of exercise needs to take place for practitioners, but also for systems to, to rethink this. So, so that the idea of like reflection, you know, where does that come into play when we talk about culture because I, I feel like broadly speaking our culture is not particularly reflective mm-hmm. <laughs> at, but at, but how do we um, how do we integrate that in in, in, in these considerations of, of, of culture and and in and, and, and working with um, with families that, that that are already traumatized and vulnerable and and do not deserve to be further traumatized by the systems that I mean are you know <laughs> In, in mission statements say that they're there to help, but perhaps in practice and policy and in historical context have done more harm. Right,
2: yeah, I think that's good. And even even how, like, where do we go from here? I feel like, one, it's acknowledging that, that historical context, trauma and harm um, for child welfare as a system you know we can't look at child welfare in isolation right like there are multiple systems actually in fact all systems right all institutions um have played a role in the um you know racism and, and oppression of historically marginalized and underserved communities and i think that the first thing is to recognize is this is not happening in isolation um so child welfare serving edges like though like people who are working within this context they definitely have an important role. Um but to also acknowledge that I think about this as a ripple, right? And for me, I'm I'm not gonna lie, I feel like child welfare um has a really important role because of the um how do they say it? Like just the breaking apart of family breaking apart of disrupting Um, the damage that's been done right and this damage has been done by individual people but when you pull enough like individual decisions and it's individuals and groups and then organizations right that are leading Mm -hmm. to these poor outcomes and so I think that we have to think about the change happening individually right and then folks gathering together in groups and then organizations doing work as an organization and then like the system as a whole and so I think that if we think about it in that way everybody has a role everybody has a part to play um I, I think that like on the individual level um being a learner um understanding that one you don't have to know everything about families <laughs> like different types of families or, or difference right to be able to really be helpful um, but right. like, how do we really practice what we preach, what, what we preach, like interacting with people and meeting them where they really are, um, not, you know, um, operating within like the, the whiteness norm in that there's only one way to raise a child. There's only one way to discipline a child. There's only one way to, um, like, address one's mental wellness, right, (laughs) for example. There's not one way to do anything. There are, in fact, many different ways. And so I think becoming a learner and also learning about how our own, like, current practice is guided by research and theories um, and bodies of knowledge that also, like, have, for the most part, been um, developed and uh, disseminated by white people, and also um, operating from a you know a more white mainstream perspective. So I say that intentionally because for the change to happen, we have to be able to hear, learn from, accept, appreciate, integrate non bodies of knowledge, um, non dominant ways of doing things. Um, and that looks like, um, you know, meeting people where they really are, <laughs> um, mm. looking at mm-hmm. theories and research that, that, that have, um, diverse, uh, racially, ethnically in, in any kind of diversity, like queer perspectives, yeah. um, theories and ways of being, um, um, you know, to, to recognize that because of power differences, right, um, there are issues related to dissemination of research and theory, right? And that if uh, communities of color are not traditionally holders of wealth or positions of power um, influence, then it makes sense that it would take a lot of work to find these these gems right this wisdom mm-hmm. it takes an in, in, in intentional effort to seek out non-dominant bodies of knowledge and ways of, of doing things and so I would say on an individual level one it's learning but also being willing to to dig a bit recognizing that part of um the isms <laughs> or the forces right is um silencing uh, anything mm-hmm. that's not anything that does not align with the norm. Um, And I don't want to get too political here, but I would say that, you know, there's a reason why things like critical race theory and intersectionality um, came up in policy as a a thing, a force, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, To be addressed, but it doesn't take much to find out more about those like non-traditional ways of thinking and understanding and making sense additionally having those types of framing can help a person see and think in different ways and if you can see a situation and think about it in a different way then you can shift how you interact and you behave in work directly with with individuals if you can see a person for example um in the multiple forces of oppression that are impacting them for example black woman you know like the the classism and so like the the if you can see all those forces at play then I think that you can better understand their experience but also like approach people with uh, a real just desire to though the best word is cultural humility it's like just Mm -hmm. to learn and to understand to make sense of so that then you can connect with a person on a real level and then to know how to best help them um through listening to them um, I think that the, the learning piece is one, the other pieces of action, um, and moving beyond saying something is a problem and actually creating some some real strategies. like we're we are really equipped. We are well equipped <laughs> to assess problems as social workers and create treatment plans <laughs> and then execute them, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that in a similar way we are well equipped to assess to learn um, to create a plan and and execute it and also um, knowing the importance of incorporating as many voices as possible and especially those whose voices have been um, unheard or not heard as loudly but who are as close in proximity to the problem as possible. Um, We know that's the right thing to do yet we haven't been doing it as
1: much. Right, and I, I this is you're reminding me of a brief conversation we had earlier before recording about um, th- there's there's what the individual level practitioner can and can't do. You know, there's you, you, we we've talked about multiple big forces in this conversation, um, but you're you're also getting at sort of concretely how, how does one educate oneself a little. Um, and, 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 and how do we do that sort of um, outside of what we are, are formally taught, that that we have to seek this information out? And you're right, it's it's not hard to find nowadays with the Internet and, and there's so many, you know, um, ways to access information. But, but having to make the time to sort of to educate ourselves and to maybe challenge a little bit um, what we thought we knew, mm-hmm. what we thought we knew isn't really maybe perhaps what we know right. right to be to be true or, re, or reality um I, i'm wondering so sort of in our, our last few minutes um, for someone for a, for a practitioner like how would they start like what do you have sort of favorite resources um to get people started on that journey and, and then and what do you think are some takeaways for them to sort of hold in mind and keep with them um, as as they do their work, absolutely, yeah,
2: there's a ton of resources I could recommend if i I'll try to narrow down, but I want to say one thing just from my own experience um I really love the cultural humility framing that emphasizes lifelong learning critical self reflection um understanding the power imbalances and in ways of of mitigating or addressing that and then the third part of that framing on cultural humility is related to uh, institutional accountability so it emphasizes accountability and I would add to that like accountability on every level right um and so for me a key takeaway would be well before the takeaway I would say the point in which I recognize the power that I do hold and the privilege I do hold as being a person who um, is in a position to help people have positive experiences, um, to help with relationship to access, um, to be at the table where people were asking me questions that could lead to ideas and programs and solutions. Right. Getting to that place was it was enlightening because I, too, walked into this and and thought, like, I don't have any power. You know, I don't make any decisions. I'm just out here working directly with families. And all the ideas that I share with them, they shut down or say that's above my pay grade. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I, I finally got to a place where I learned that. Just looking back. I did have power and I did have influence, and I, you know, talk about like cradle to prison pipeline. I played a part in that. Um, as a mental health consultant, being called out and noticing that most of the calls that I was getting were to address challenging behaviors in black and brown children, right? I, I noticed those patterns, right? But I didn't at the time make sense of that that was a part of this larger process also noticing that the the disciplinary action right that was proposed in most of those cases were harsher right than mm-hmm. um blonde hair blue-eyed um little child on the other side doing more damage <laughs> um mm-hmm. but i did not speak to those things right and so looking back now, I can see how I played a role in, um, you know, this process. And so I think that my first takeaway is to pause and to sit with how might I be currently used as a tool in this dynamic process of um, racially um, different patterns of interaction or thought um for different groups how maybe has this played a role in my past work right can you reckon with that like I, I sometimes come to tears when I think about how this um the role that I played in the process and I think that even now as I think about it 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 makes me almost like I can feel it bubble up inside I'm gonna take my deep breath and calm because um we have to know that Whether we want to or not, (laughs) our lack of awareness um, is impacting our capacity for change, right? And us going through the hustle and bustle and not pausing, right, is leading to us being um, used in different ways, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that some radical folks have said that, like, the, the reckoning comes from the awakening, right? Like, you have to wake up and recognize how these things work to then be able to address it um nope i can't go back to every child that i helped move to a better place um mm-hmm. that i helped or every parent that i had a discussion with about how challenging their child's behavior is right um and who then told their child their child was bad <laughs> um, or who punished them or whatever i can't go back there um but what i can do is talk to people now about how our biases and thoughts about child development and behavior in many ways shape what we judge to be not okay um what we judge to be um what we judge to need to be disciplined harshly right um and who we think needs to to experience that and how that that ought to look right and we have to stop and pause and and sit with those things so for each person is to sit and pause and reflect on what, what is their role in this process. And, and we all have a role and that's persons of color, persons who identify as white, white adjacent, who benefit from, from that privilege. Um, but then it's to, the lifelong learning to continue to learn and grow and to be confident in this. You'll never know everything about anything. <laughs> and that's okay and that if we just keep approaching every person that we interact with and and, in the spirit of like a wanting a want and a willingness and a curiosity to know um and a curiosity and, and willingness to understand and to be helpful in the way that they want us to be helpful I think we'll be okay um because if we can do that we won't be privileging certain ways of doing things we won't privilege uh, a person who has formal child care over a person who says they want their mom or their sister to care for their kids, right? We won't privilege, uh, you know, a, a parent who decides that instead of going to substance use treatment in a formal setting, they want to go to the church who has a group mm. of people, right, who gather and they feel like, the spiritual connection in the the relationships they have with those people will be more helpful than them going to a substance use and addiction counselor, uh, counselor for example, that they do not know and who does not align um, with their interests or experiences. And so I think that's part of it. Um, the other part is just like in that there's, there's sharing of power in our listening, and our learning, right? there's ways that we can think about sharing and building power and it may be to think about how can you involve more parents in decision making how can Mm. you how can you literally like take a survey of the folks you're interacting with and ask them what they desire or want and then like use your position at the table to amplify their voices or encourage folks to seek To hear from people who are as close to whatever is the issue or the problem as possible. um, That's using power. That's thinking about building power. Folks have amazing ideas. Like in my research, I interviewed black mothers um, about mental health. And the ideas that they gave me were practical they were easy to do and they actually don't cost that much money <laughs> yeah. and so it's 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 one of those things that like in this in this place where we value efficiency and we value effectiveness why are we not asking the folks who are the most well-resourced <laughs> and like that is a skill that a lot of people in underserved under-resourced communities have is how to make a little go-along way right and so there are some ideas I know that folks can share with us. Um, and then lastly, the accountability piece. Reflective supervision groups, reflective supervision can be helpful, but also spaces where um, folks can join together to create plans and hold each other accountable would be helpful. And let's let these institutions, like, let's hold them more accountable. Um, we, we we see these problems, and there's beautiful, uh, rigorous <laughs> data out there to help us know what some mm-hmm. of the the issues are let's let's use this data and start holding these institutions or the organizations that we work in more accountable for creating more positive experiences um equitable equitable opportunities and access for these
1: communities so that there's so much i could <laughs> sort of take from that but that, that so what i'm getting from you and I, I sort of made a little summary myself of, of what you've said because this this is really empowering to me from a practitioner perspective this idea of first we have to do some ref, self-reflection and introspection about how how perhaps how have i participated in the current system and the current dynamics which i think is really painful and really difficult and and You know, it takes a a degree of courage, really, to look back on that. But I also think what an amazing opportunity for repair. You know, Mm -hmm. we always talk in in sort of psychodynamic worlds about you can always make repair on the rupture or for parents. You don't have to get it right every time because there's it's about the repair. Um, You mentioned sort of educating ourselves. You know, and, and educating ourselves and, and, and elevating voices that have been suppressed and, and seeking that out, seeking out alternative viewpoints and learning to take on different perspectives, which is also part of that's what we have to learn how to do as, as reflective practitioners. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Listening to the families that that that, you know, we 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 have not um, because people are under resourced and living on the margins. Doesn't mean that they are not the experts on their lives and their right. realities and their children, and 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 that, that needs to be heard and recognized and acknowledged. And so, for a practitioner who might be in a situation where, like you said, they're at a table, they have an opportunity to contribute something or talk about to represent um, the voice of the families. You know, how can using those opportunities to do that? You know, like these are the realities that, that that our families are facing because oftentimes the people in power making the decisions don't know. I, I mm-hmm. remember being a part of the randomized clinical trial through my work and, and you know we had brilliant researchers and investigators leading this charge, but they didn't know a whole lot about walking into someone's home mm-hmm. and, and how do you make sense of what's happening and how do you inhabit that environment and situate yourself so that you can build a relationship and so that they will ask you to come back. Right. And and that that, that needs to be um, at that decision-making table conversation, right, Th- those, mm-hmm. those realities. Um, and then you talk about sort of the, the accountability, um, the checking in with one another, the holding our organizations, institutions, our profession accountable. Yeah. You know, w- w- what are we doing um, in social work? What are we doing in infant mental health or early care and education? Um, to, to, to replicate the, the inequity and and then how do we make repair? Mm-hmm. How do we think about that as a system and, and, and that comes with, with advocacy as well. Um, so I mean I it feels to me like it, these are these are tangible real things, concrete things that um, and we what we like like I said or we can't eradicate poverty or change the system today but these are all incremental steps if every practitioner began to adopt these habits you know what would that look like mm-hmm. in in terms of 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 change um, i think it's just <laughs> holds a lot of promise totally um, i think
2: so too i think they just keeping all of these things in mind all oh, they, they are they are like it's a lot right <laughs> there's multiple parts to it but if I would emphasize one last thing is like this is not simple. We will there will be no quick fixes. <laughs> there will be no band aids that actually help address some of these issues. And so, you know, shifting our minds in our, our capacity, maybe that requires self regulation, right? Like getting in a place where we can access to our brilliant being brilliance, being mm-hmm. calm, being regulated. Mm -hmm. however that looks when you think about doing the this kind of work which is heavy but getting into those spaces will allow us to to hold so many things in mind at once and and I think doing it in relationship with one another Mm -hmm. um you know for most or many people uh we learn in in relationship with others Mm -hmm. um and for us to create um this culture a culture, right? Or a space in which we do this work um, with different values and beliefs and and, condu- and, and and customs, if you will, or norms, right? We have to do it together. And, and I think that doing it together will make it um, more enjoyable and give us the capacity to, to um, not get burnt out, right? Cause you can get burnt out in this kind of work. Cause it's like, definitely the kind of stuff that can blow your mind um but that we can stay connected and and we can do more than just survive um but to really facilitate and see the the change that needs to happen happen uh, i think we do need to stay connected to each other and then that can help you know maybe open our minds up as well to the complexity yeah
1: absolutely and the, which the lifelong learning mm-hmm. right is that that, that and, and I think that's true beyond being a, at all levels that no, none of us ever has arrived right. We, 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 we are always constantly learning we always have much to learn from others and like you said and from our relationships um, and, and, and we, we, we I think we have much to learn from others who we have not heard and we have mm-hmm. not traditionally listened to
0: Right,
2: um, and that's why I like like the 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 piece around like, think about whose perspective or voices that you are listening to, right, and and whose are not present, right? Like, have we heard from people who, you know, identify as Native American, right, or or Asian American? There are some groups of people LGBTQ perspectives, right? Like, there are some perspectives that we just do not hear enough of or from um that are really important for us to 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 learn from and to listen to um I I do think that you know this is another conversation but a lot of times when we're talking about racism in 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 culture we are talking in black white binaries and and that's a struggle because like the issues don't just impact black people while in this country there's a distinct story uh among uh black people in their experiences with racism, but you know, like thinking about the intersections and, and folks who um identify in different ways. I think that it's important to to hold the varied, diverse experiences in mind and, and to really continue to seek out resources and seek out relationships and, and seek out opportunities to engage. Um to expand our understanding and our knowledge and, and ultimately our practice. Um I think, like, a lot of people don't recognize the importance of, of having real relationships with, with people. And I always hear, oh, I have one friend who's Black, or I have one friend who's Native. Or, I have one, like, no, stop. Just stop. <laughs> stop doing that. Um, really just just try to expand and, and get outside of your comfort zone so you can listen and learn from as many people as
1: possible. Um, right. It's about more than one relationship. Men can be a man can be married to a woman and still be sexist. <laughs> right. So, right. Right. So we have we have to think broader. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Yeah. This has been such a good conversation. Oh. I, you know, I really yes. am excited about you know the work that everybody who's listening is is doing, and even just having this opportunity um, has been wonderful. Um, I agree. Child welfare uh, practitioners in particular have such a huge role in in shaping how families interact with all the, they call them, adjacent services and Mm -hmm. systems. And I think that while it could be daunting at times, thinking about how one interacts with each family at a time um, is really important because literally in communities of color, people talk. And so mm-hmm. if you know a person can have a good interaction with this entity That's right. they may be more likely to talk to their healthcare provider they That's may be right. more likely to talk to the people at the school um we don't know the the real uh, right. influence right that that each one of you has but just to know that it, your reach is broad um and so mm-hmm. just being really intentional and thoughtful
1: I think that's a, a fantastic note to mm-hmm. end this conversation on. So this has been a joy and an honor. Thank you, Dr. Anita Parker.
2: Igualmente. <laughs>
1: Equally. It's been great.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Con
1: mucho gusto.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service, Children and Family Services Division.